I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to James chapter 1. I'm going to make a deal with you this morning. I am going to be as brief and concise as I possibly can with dealing with the subject matter of today. And in return, I ask that you would be still long enough during this time to to do your best unless you have a medical emergency to to stay in your seat. Um, Because this morning we're going to be talking about sin. Let's just be honest, sin makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Talking about sin might make us uncomfortable. Uh, When we start to talk about the source of sin, that's going to really make us uncomfortable. So I just want you to bear with me, listen to the message, let's see what God's Word has to say. And then we can respond appropriately when it's time to make a decision based upon what we've heard. And so with with that, my commitment to you, I want you to look at James chapter 1. We're in this uh, third part of our series so far. And after dealing with the subject of wisdom, uh, James returns to the central theme of this chapter, and that is the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith occurs through trials and through temptations. In our text this morning, he's going to show us how we can overcome temptation in life. Now in verses 2 through 4, he focused on how we can benefit from the trials that we face. And so temptations and trials are completely different. They come from different sources and they have different purposes. Trials are brought in our lives by God. Temptations are presented in our life by Satan. The purpose of trials is to build up our character, to strengthen us. The purpose of temptations is to tear us down and to destroy us. And so God tests His people in order to strengthen their character. And some of the examples that you can read through Scripture are like Abraham in Genesis chapter 2 or Israel in Exodus chapter 16. And so while God might test us in order to strengthen us, He will never, ever tempt us. James chapter 1, verse number 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So the natural propensity of mankind is to blame God for their faults, for their failures, or for the filth that's in their lives. But that's a huge mistake. And I'm going to show you why. First of all, you have to understand that God cannot be tempted by evil. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. God is light, the perfect form of light with the absence of any kind of darkness. So God is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. And because there is no darkness in him, well, that means that there is nothing that could tempt him to sin or to do evil. It is because of the darkness that resides within us that we fall for the temptations that are presented to us. 
And so since God is perfect light and in him there is no darkness, then there's no way that he can be tempted to sin. So therefore, by his very nature, God can have absolutely nothing to do with evil or temptation. And then the second part of that thought is the realization that to tempt a person is an evil thing to do. It takes a self-seeking and evil person to try to entice or seduce somebody to do something that's forbidden. And our God is not like that. God is the very opposite. He loves us and, and He cares for us. He seeks to save us and to restore us into a right relationship with Him. God is not trying to trip us up. He is not trying to destroy or discredit us. He's trying to build us up. So God's holiness does not allow Him to be tempted to do evil. Therefore, He cannot be tempted to tempt man because that would be an evil thing for Him to do. Now back to verse number 13. It says, so uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So, so that statement presents a temptation within itself. From the very beginning of humanity, we've been faced with the temptation to blame other people for our weaknesses and our shortcomings. And it all began in the garden. Adam started the blame game, and we've been perpetuating that game ever since. Adam had the audacity in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 2, to blame God for the sin in his life. Adam's response when he was confronted with sin was to turn to God and say in verse number 12 of chapter 3 of Genesis, the woman that you gave me. And then the very next verse, Eve has the audacity to blame his cre creation. He, she blames the serpent. She says, it wasn't my fault, it was the serpent that deceived me. And then we've been going through the blame game ever since then. We always are looking for other people to blame for our faults or, or for our mistakes. It's why we have husbands who will try to blame their wives for their addiction to pornography. We have wives that blame their inattentive of husbands for their flirtatious relationship with other men. That's why we have children that try to blame their parents for their rebellious attitudes. Or we have parents that actually try to blame their children for their marital problems. It, it's as though like when we run out of people to blame for our own sin and for our junk, then we'll just move on to try to rationalizing the sin away. So we try to rationalize our bad tempers. We, we rationalize our gossip. We rationalize our excessive drinking and eating. We rationalize the minor offenses. We even rationalize away the gross immorality that exists in our lives. So when we run out of people to blame, and then when we've run out of ways to try to rationalize the sin that we're caught up with, if we're not careful, we'll also be tempted to just kind of joke and and mock sin in the first place. I think it was Flip Wilson was the one that made popular the statement, the devil made me do it. Yeah, that ain't true. It's not the devil that made you do anything. It's the darkness that exists within you that falls for the temptation that's set before you. 
Therefore, you have absolutely no one to blame or no way to rationalize it other than having to look yourself in the mirror and say the sin that exists in your life is your fault and your fault alone. So, so that's why we're going to deal with who's responsible for a propensity to evil or who or, or what causes us to sin. Now, the answer to that question, you know, might surprise you. Maybe it doesn't. But we're going to see that answer as it starts to get played out beginning in verse number 14. Verse number 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to look at sin as a single act of defiance, whereas God looks at sin as a process that occurs in our life. In fact, James begins to describe this process that occurs in four stages. So let me give you those four stages this morning. First of all, the stage number one would be the stage of desire. Back to verse 14. It says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the normal desires of life were given to us by God, and the normal desires of life are not bad in and of themselves. Now, think about it. Without the normal desires of life, then we couldn't function. For instance, unless we felt hunger or we felt thirst, then we might not ever eat or drink, and therefore we die. Unless we, we felt or experienced fatigue, then the body would never slow down long enough to rest, thus it would wear itself out. Sex is a normal desire. Without sex, then none of us would be here today. That's all I'll say about that one. It's when we begin to take these normal desires and begin to pursue them in ways that are outside the boundaries and the restrictions that God has given us that that's when we find ourselves getting in a whole lot of trouble. Eating is normal. Gluttony is sin. Sleep is normal. Laziness is sin. And according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 4, it says that let marriage be on, held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, so the first stage of sin, that sin process, is that stage of desire. And desire, if we don't keep it in check, and we don't work within the desires, within the boundaries that God has put in our lives, then desire can give way to deception. Deception follows. No temptation announces itself as temptation. It doesn't just come with a warning that said, hey, don't fall for me. I'm really just something in disguise. That's not how it works. In fact, James uses two illustrations from the world of sports to prove his point. Back to verse 14. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That word lured, or some of your translations might say drawn away, it carries with it the idea of uh, baiting a trap. And then the other word, enticed, in the original Greek means to bait a hook. 
So we're talking about setting bait on a trap or setting bait on a hook. And so the hunter and the fisherman have to use bait in order to try to attract and catch its prey. And so no animal will deliberately going to step into a trap or no fish is willingly going to to strike and and to chomp down on, on a bare hook. And so temptation always carries with it some bait that makes it appeal to our natural desires. And so the bait not only attracts us, it also hides the fact that giving in to the desire will ultimately bring about sorrow, punishment, and great disappointment. I would encourage you at some point today, I'm not going to read through it all this morning, but I encourage you at some point today to read through Matthew chapter 4, specifically in verses 1 through 11. In Matthew chapter 4, in verses 1 through 11, you'll find the account of when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And so when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he always dealt with the temptation on the basis of God's word. He always dealt with temptation on the basis of the Word of God. Three times in response to the tempter, Jesus said, it is written. And so from from a human point of view, uh, turning stones into bread in order to satisfy one's hunger might seem like the reasonable or sensible thing to do, but not from God's point of view. And so, my point is, when you know the Bible, then you're going to be able to detect the bait and deal with it accordingly, just like our Lord did. So desire, and then the second stage is the stage of deception, and then that, when it is pursued, leads to disobedience. So we've moved from the desire and the deception onto the decision to take action. Or another way to say that, we've moved on from the emotion and the intellect and have now entered into the exercising of our will. Verse number 15 begins, and it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So now James is changing his illustration from the world of sports, from hunting and fishing. Now he's changing it to the process of giving birth to a baby. See, desire conceives a method for taking the bait. And then the will of a person is, is what approves uh, the bait and is willing to take action towards the bait. And, and that end result of taking action for that desire that's within you, exercise unrightly, well, the end result of that is sin. So you have desire, deception, disobedience. And the fourth stage is the stage of death. Death. Verse 15 continues. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's actually two births that are mentioned in verse number 15. First, it's the evil desire that gives birth to sin, and then sin gives birth to death. The idea here is that sin grows rapidly. Just as an embryo grows to maturity, and it's, when it's reached its 
full maturity, then the state of the pregnancy must end. But the frightening reality is, is that this birth that's being talked about is not a birth of life as what you would normally expect for birth to give life. No, this is a, a birth of death. Disobedience gives birth to death, not to life. And the imagery of death is vivid and frightening. And we need to see it for what it is. See, we can't blame anyone else for our sin. We can't blame Satan for our sin. The devil can't make you do anything. He can't put out traps and temptation that you are prone to pursue. But ultimately, you're responsible for the sin that's in your life. And we have to stop blaming other people. And we must deal with it for what it is. And sin gives birth to death. And so I want to tell you that whatever it is that you're chasing after, whatever sin it is that you're pursuing, whatever deception it is that you're falling for, whatever temptation it is that you're giving great consideration into pursuing, whatever it is, stop. Stop. Run away from it. Have nothing to do with it. Know what the Word of God has to say about every circumstance and situation that you face. Therefore, you can identify and recognize that temptation for what it is. And it's nothing but an empty trap to try to discourage you, to try to destroy you, or to try to discredit who you are in Christ Jesus. Have nothing to do with it, my friends. Run away from it. And so if we're to run away from it and have nothing to do with it, then, then what are we to do in the midst of temptation? What are we to do when we are so prone to be dragged away and enticed by the, the residual effects of darkness that still reside within us? I want to tell you what you need to do. You need to remember how God is faithful in your salvation. Remember the faithfulness of our Lord. Look at verse number 16. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. With that being said, I want to encourage you that in, in, in your trials and in your temptations, don't believe the lies. Remember, oh, that God is good. And not only that He's good, that He is very good. And our God wants what's good for you. He wants to build you up, not to tear you down, so you can trust Him in your trials, and you can turn to Him in your temptation. You get that? He's so good. He's so faithful. He's so true that in your trials, you can trust Him. And in your temptations, you can turn to Him. And why do we turn to Him in our temptation? Because He's the one that has the way of escape. He's the one that's working ever so tirelessly to make sure that we don't have to fall for the temptation that's right in front of us. 
Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will now let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You catch that? He's not going to give you more temptation than you're able to bear. Because why? It's not because of how good you are. It's because of how faithful He is that with whatever temptation that you're presented with, He will give you the way of escape from that temptation. So you don't have to succumb to it. You don't have to fall for the lies. All you have to do is take your eyes off the temptation and put your eyes on the Lord and start crying out to Him and say, Father, help me. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Turn to Him. And keep your eyes away from the things that are wrong. See, one of the enemy's tricks is that he tries to convince us that our God is holding out on us. That He doesn't fully love us. That He, that he doesn't fully care for us that he's keeping something hidden from us i mean that's what uh, satan used against eve in the garden he, he presented to her the the argument to suggest that if god really did love her really did care for her trust her then that he would allow her to eat from the tree that was forbidden and so because God doesn't really trust you, then, then that must be why you're not able to eat. And she fell for the deception. It's the same type of tactic that Satan used on Jesus in the wilderness. If God really cared for him. If God really loved him, then why is he hungry? Why are your needs being met? Why don't you just turn the, the stone into bread and take care of yourself? I want you to understand that the goodness of God is a great barrier to yield to temptation, against yielding to it. The goodness of God is a great barrier to, to, to giving in to temptation. May you always remember that God is faithful, that He is loving, that He cares for you, that He provides for you. And so since God is good, you need to hear this, since God is good, then you do not need any other person, any other thing, any other individual, including Satan, to try to meet your needs. You don't need anyone else to meet your needs other than God. You need no one, no other person. There's no one or nothing in this world that can complete you the way that God can and the way that He desires. So Jerry Maguire was all wrong when he said, you complete me. There's no such thing. And if you're looking for your completeness in another person, you'll be disappointed because you'll never find it. If you're looking for your completeness and your identity, then you'll be disappointed. You'll be let down because you'll screw something up and your identity will be decrushed and you'll have no confidence in yourself. If you're looking for any other person or any other thing in your life to complete you, my friend, you're setting yourself up for failure. The only way that you can experience completeness is in and through Jesus Christ. So, so God is good. And He is perfect in and of Himself. And He is the source of all good and perfect gifts. And once we start to doubt God's goodness, then we will be attracted to what Satan has to offer us. 
and those natural desires within us will begin to reach out to, to pursuing those desires in a way that God doesn't intend for us to pursue. Back to verse number 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So no variation and no change. God is light. He is perfect light. So perfect and pure is He that there is no shadow with the Father of lights. And so may you know that it is impossible for God to change. He cannot change. He is the unchanging God. God cannot change for the worse because He's holy. God cannot change for the better because He is already perfect. God is the unchanging God. So when when trials come or when temptations appear, we should never question His love or doubt His goodness in life. And so one of the first barriers that we have against temptation, quite frankly, is the judgment of God. And so if we're not scared enough to avoid the temptation based upon the judgment of God, then the second barrier that we have against temptation is the goodness of God. And so the fear of God is a healthy attitude, but the love of God must balance the fear of God out in our lives. And so may we rest in the unchangeable Lord of light. And may we rely on the life-giving Word of truth. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. We're certainly not going to raise hands to this question. But I wonder how many of us today might have a little bit of shame in our lives because of the sin that we're currently wrapped up with. The sin that you're pursuing. What you're still longing after. Are you willing to to let it go? Are you willing to identify it for what it is? Are you willing to stop blaming other people for the choices that you're making for yourself? Are you willing to stop blaming your circumstance, your parents, whatever event has happened to you? Are you willing to start taking ownership of your choices and committing yourselves to live a life of faithful obedience to what the Word of God calls us to do? In order for us to be able to easily detect the, the temptation and the bait that Satan will throw our way, then we have to be firmly rooted in the Word of God we got to be great students of God's Word. Disciplined to read it and study it and rightly apply it to our lives so that we can experience victory the way that God would have us to experience. So take heart, my Christian brothers and sisters. May you know that God has saved us from the penalty of our sin. And He's continuing to save us through the practice of sin, so that one day we will ultimately and finally be saved from the very presence of sin. And since God has saved us from our sins, then we can have confidence to trust in Him that He will see us through our sorrows. Think about the truth of the Gospel. 
We have a love of a God who conquers sin and suffering through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we can all consider it joy when we face trials. And so that we can have complete confidence when we face temptation. Trials and temptation exist in our life to reveal who we are, to reveal what we believe, to reveal what's important to us. And God allows trials and temptations to occur in our lives so that we might be strengthened to walk in a way that honors and glorifies Him. In this time of invitation, it is a time for us to get right before Holy Father. I don't know the sin that you're wrapped up with today. It could be, it could be anything. I'm not even going to attempt to try to tell what it could be. But let me ask you this. Are you sitting here today in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father? I didn't ask you if you're sitting here with a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are to be pursuing perfection in our life, but fully realizing that the ultimate perfection won't come until we receive our glorified bodies, and that's after Jesus returns. But that doesn't give us an excuse or a way out so that we can keep on chasing the sin that's in our lives. Will you confess your sin today? Will you repent from your sin? Will you turn to God, the author and the perfecter of your faith? Will you receive the forgiveness that he longs to give you? And will you commit to live your life in a way that fully honors and glorifies him? I hope the answer to all of that is absolutely yes. Let's pray. Father, help us in this moment First and foremost, Father, I pray that you'll give us victory over the sin of pride. That prideful spirit kicks in every single week at this time. Pride tells us that we don't need to make a decision. Pride tells us that we don't need to make a decision in front of other people. Pride tells us that it's nobody else's business what I do or how I decide to respond. Father, I pray that you would give us a broken spirit in this moment. Give us great sensitivity to the sin that's in our lives. Give us an awesome awareness of how it displeases you. And give us an overwhelming conviction to do something about it. Starting by confessing and repenting and turning and trusting in you. So God, during this time, I pray that you would be pleased by what you see in us and what we do for your honor and for your glory. We ask your blessings upon this time. Be pleased, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you